Hello and welcome. This is the Yoga Revolution podcast. My name is Jeevana Heyman. My pronouns are he and him. This podcast is an exploration of how we can live yoga right now and how we can apply the yoga teachings in our lives. We'll discuss the intersection of yoga and social justice, as well as how to build a practice that supports our activism. All my guests are contributors to my new book, Yoga Revolution, Building a Practice of Courage and Compassion. Thanks so much for joining me. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm very excited today to have my friend Sarit Rogers here as a guest. Um, hi, Sarit. Hi, Jeevana. Hi. Good to see you and hear you. Um, I wanted to introduce you. Actually, I'm going to read part of your bio because it's good. And you do so many amazing things. So Sarit Z. Rogers is a somatic experiencing practitioner, accomplished photographer, writer, group facilitator, and trauma-informed and accessible yoga teacher. Mm -hmm. um, I added that in. Sarit facilitates <laughs> groups and provides somatic experiencing sessions to adolescents and adults in treatment. Sarit integrates mindfulness, invitational language, movement, and self-awareness, encouraging students to develop accessible tools for self-care, self-regulation, and healthy boundaries. Her goal is to bring yoga and SE, somatic experiencing, to underserved communities where healing is needed the most and is often out of reach. So thank you for being here. Thank you for you? asking me. You're welcome. Well, I should say before we get into this that um, not only did you contribute like all the other guests I've had on this podcast, but you also took the photographs of me that are in the last chapter, actually the last section of the book, that whole series. And you also took all the pictures in my first book, Accessible Yoga. Um, and you're an amazing photographer. So thank you for that. Yeah, should you're we talk welcome. about that first, maybe? Should sure. We talk about photos? <laughs> We can talk about whatever you want. <laughs> well, I just want to say that you're not just a contributor to the book in this section that you wrote, but also in that photography you've done. Um, actually, why don't we go back to what you wrote? Because I think that'll help set the stage. I, for each of these interviews, I've had the contributor read their contribution. I wonder if you would do that, if you could read the section um, that you shared with us with that awesome yeah. photograph. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, all right. <clears throat> so my yoga practice grounds me and nourishes me deeply, allowing for the expansion of my own capacity to hold space for and be a grounded presence and an empathetic witness to the populations I work with. Social justice and service, seva, are what led me to teach. It has never been about the fancy space or the notoriety. Teaching and practicing yoga is bearing witness, humanizing the unseen in our society, dismantling systems of oppression, and sharing compassion. I remember the felt sense of making eye contact with an incarcerated man at the county jail when I asked him his name, the name he wanted to be called, not his number or last name. He was in a solitary cage in the recreation room. There were tears in his eyes, a gentleness that emerged in his face when I said, I see you. My practice allowed me to bear witness to honor the feelings of my own powerlessness and also feel gratitude from this man as a result of being seen. 
My practice calls for justice and the impetus to ensure that difference is honored and not diminished by otherness. Hmm. Wow. That's an amazing, amazing sharing and contribution. Um, so I wanted to also place it in the book because for me, this was, it's such a powerful, um, expression, well, of you and also of, of, yoga practice. And I put it in probably my favorite section of the book, which is the section, it's a chapter called Rainbow Mind. And it was the section that I, that's what I actually wanted to title the book originally. And then the publisher asked me to change it. But I, I was trying to describe something, I think you really got to it there, which is a kind of a, a state of mind that really does embrace others and sees others. And, in, and the reason I, I wanted to share that is because I feel like, at least within the yoga tradition, there's been kind of this um, idea that enlightenment and that the goal of our practice is this stillness, this total peace and quiet, mm. and almost this, and this um, isolation um, from the world, like where we you know, go sit in the cave and meditate forever, and then we become enlightened. And I just feel like that's so not my experience or what my goal is, and it's not what I see the practice giving us. And I feel like you you really embody what I'm talking about, and you shared it there so beautifully, which is actually how can the practice create compassion within us and connection yeah. rather than what you described as otherness? Because I'm afraid that kind of enlightenment feels very, I don't know. It feels very othering. It feels, yeah. well, I, I've always sort of, how do I say this? Um, that idea that we have to separate ourselves from people in order to become enlightened feels counterintuitive. I think of it through the, the lens also of social engagement and connection. And we're hardwired to be engaged with each other. Um, and we know this just scientifically and all of that. And I think that there's a beauty in yoga of asking us to connect and also to separate and look within. And there's a way to do both of those without isolating and um, separating ourselves as though we're above. Mm -hmm. um, exactly. You know, because oftentimes I've noticed that there's people who will go on these long, silent, immersive retreats that are beneficial in many ways, right? But then they come back and their teacup is full, so to speak, like nothing can happen or they're knocked off balance. And yeah. there's something to be said for being able to move through the world, holding these practices as, as like part of our tool pouch. Yeah. And I know that you have training in mindfulness as well. And maybe I think Buddhism addresses this more. I feel like there's a tradition within Buddhism, specifically like teachers like Thich Nhat Hanh, who I quote just before your you actually. Um, <laughs> I'm in great company. That's amazing. You are in great company because, you know, he created engaged Buddhism. And I feel like what we don't what I don't see in yoga is engaged yoga. And I guess that's what I feel you doing. And the reason I asked you to share 
and be a contributor to the book. And I think you, you got it directly in that, in what you said. I mean, the way you talk about other, otherness, I just wonder, um, yeah, I don't know if you can say more about that. Like, how do you use your yoga, the yoga part of your practice to help you with that? Like, is there part, is there something that you're doing in your practice or does that come through your, your Buddhist training or your, your SC training? Like, is there, I don't, God, it's so interesting. I think that it comes, they're integrated. I think a lot of it. So somatic experiencing asks it really our goal, I think with our nervous systems, right. Is to be in this state of relaxed alertness and yoga gives this, gives us this platform to, to investigate and discern and pay attention to with that gentle awareness. So I think that there's, they, they both make sense to me in this, in a similar way. And I think, you know, as, because I, I work with disability and some days moving is not as accessible to me as other days. Some days I, I appear and function in a very able-bodied way. And other days I wake up and I'm like, wow, okay. So right now it's like this. So Mm -hmm. my practice, my yoga practice allows me to be in that place of, oh, okay. So my yoga today is my breathing or my yoga today is my presence or my yoga today is my witnessing of myself and my, um, my place in the world on that given day. And, um, I don't know. I think it places me on a, on a, I've always looked at yoga as an opportunity to be horizontally, Mm. not horizontal as in lying down, but not a vertical (laughs) hierarchy, but as that we're sort of teaching each other, and maybe yeah. that sort of disagrees with the sort of the guru lineage in a way, but there's also this kind of like, we are moving. It's a dance. I don't know if I'm expressing that very well. Yeah. So you're, well, in a way you've, you've integrated the yoga teachings, it sounds like, and, and you're not, it's like, you're not stuck in a traditional way of interpreting them, but you're using them in your life and in your teaching, it sounds like, and integrating them with your other training. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, even in SE, when we talk about like, that's my, my primary modality really is yoga, but it's not just asana. I think my, I use everything else I'm using, you know, the other limbs probably more so in many ways. Mm-hmm. without right. naming in that, it as such <laughs> right in in your quote you said that your practice grounds you and nourishes you allowing you for the allowing for the expansion of your own capacity to hold space for yeah and be a grounded presence and an empathetic witness to the people you serve and so it seems like something has given you tremendous capacity it seems to me to be with people that are struggling or suffering yeah. Yeah. Can you yeah. say more about that? I mean, is it your, is it your, like, what are you doing? What are you doing? That's allowing that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing a lot of deep internal healing work. I think probably most of it is my somatic experiencing personal work that I'm doing. Uh-huh. And there's something that I often say that like, as we sort of 
touch into the discomfort, right? We do it in yoga. Notice that, like, come up to the edge and, and notice it, but don't go, don't push past it. Don't push, right? Not, so that we're not pushing, but we're going, oh, wow, that's, that's a little uncomfortable. And can I soften and turn toward instead of pushing away? Mm-hmm. and running away every time we sort of resist we create more bracing and more actually limit that internal capacity to to yeah. hold or to do anything and um i think se has taught me it's given me this opportunity to sort of titrate sort of little mm. bits at a time little bites some of the really big stuff in my nervous system so that it has more space to be there. So it's not that things don't knock me over. I, I get knocked over and it, it's really interesting. Some things that you'd expect me to get knocked over by, I'm like, eh, it doesn't matter. And then there's <laughs> something like really innocuous and I'm like, rah, I'm like something, you know, and it's, it's funny, that's how trauma works. That's how our nervous systems are sort of unpredictable in that way. Um, but I think my own pretty complex and profound trauma history has actually been a gift in the sense mm. that I had this capacity to survive all this abuse. Mm. And when I realized that that really sucked and I didn't want to, I didn't want to have the capacity for abuse. In fact, I wanted the capacity for the good. Mm. Um, having that amount of capacity for the for the abuse showed me that there was an equal capacity available to me i needed to actually turn toward it and how how did you do that how did you see that i mean through your own practice you realized that consciously i mean is that you consciously chose or is that just you you... i think it's in it's part of it's just me part of it's the felt sense Uh of not thinking about it I think that's why I love yoga so much is that we're really feeling into the practice. We're not, mm-hmm. it's not really a cognitive practice. It's a feeling right. practice. And so am I in my yoga when I'm thinking about it as much? Mm-hmm. Not really. So I guess what I'm trying to get at is that it seems like you found a way to transmute your own personal suffering Mm-hmm. to be of service to others. And I, I mention it that way because also in this section, I, that, that's what I talk about in this section of the book too, which is that I, I there's a book, a new book by Sharon Salzberg um, called Real Change. And she, mm-hmm. I have a quote from her in this section. And she says, equanimity balances our caring so that compassionate action can be sustained and won't drown under the weight and yep. we won't drown under the weight of our own sorrow. So it's I like, love her so much. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like you're, you're saying the same thing, which is like you took, so you had your, your personal trauma, right? Like mm-hmm. whatever your abuse, you called it. And somehow that gave you a capacity, but you found some equanimity with it. Because I would just say, I think for most of us, when we've had, when we've been abused or have trauma, that usually that can stop us. It can limit us. Mm -hmm. And you're saying the opposite, that it actually gave you a capacity. Um, It it did. But I think a lot of that was that I became willing to look at the, the shadow, 
that I don't believe in it. And it wasn't yoga was something that opened the doorway for me to be able to do that. But it was really working with trauma healing practices like somatic experiencing um, and some of the, even the touch work that helped with the developmental stuff um, helped me actually release a lot of that survival energy that was holding um, that shows up in our lives as reactivity or um, bracing shows up as chronic pain, right? Shows up as all of these Mm -hmm. things and working very diligently for, for many years now to start to untangle right? It's sort of like, you know, when you have a necklace that's tangled up and it's really frustrating and it's like, oh, I can't get it apart. And it's like, it, there's a, a charge that shows up. If we take that necklace and just really gently, right? It's start to roll it in the palm of our hand. It starts to untangle. And in many ways, that's been the gentle, intentional, process of this healing, which has brought me closer to my yoga practice um, and allowed me to walk into spaces that are oftentimes jarring. The story I shared about, um, we were teaching to um, a, a group of men who had been taken out of general population for bad behavior, for violent behavior. And so these were particularly violent inmates and they could only come out four at a time and they would come out handcuffed individually and individually put into their own cage. Um, If you ever are in Los Angeles and you go to the old zoo in Griffith Park, those cages that the animals were in are kind of the same size or similar in size to the cages these men were in. And the first time I saw it, and I was, I was actually with DeJour, and the first time we saw it, we both, we sort of gasped, like, you're putting people in there? It was, it was, uh, it was shocking. And mm-hmm. I ended up teaching in that particular unit multiple times. Um, not all the teachers wanted to go in there. It was really disturbing to be in there. And I realized that these cages created a, a whole different element of separation, because when we teach in the prisons, we're, we're, you know, six, 10 feet apart from each other and there's, but they're human. And I've actually, you know, you walk up and you talk to people and there's, there's some social engagement that occurs. And here there's this like cage with a chair and a mat and a block and that's it. Hmm. And yeah. um, in a very echoey, smelly rec room. And I thought, well, what happens, and this is my photography brain that kicks in, when you go up to a pattern, a fence, a gate, and you get closer to it, it goes out of focus, and what's in focus is what's inside. Hmm. And I was like, okay, this is about this is about depth of field, and how do I integrate depth of field so that I can bear witness? and humanize these men who are being profoundly dehumanized in this experience. And so I walked up to each one and you couldn't like put your, you couldn't be a that close, but I said, hi, I'm Sarit. What's your name? And they'd go, I'm, you know, whatever the last name was. I'm Rogers. I'll use my last name. 
so I don't stigmatize anybody. And, um, and I'd go, I hear that. I'm curious. So what, what do you want to be called? What's your, what's your name? Oh, John. Hi, John. It's good to see you. Hmm. Right. I see you. And there would be this moment of like absolute connection of eye contact. And the other thing, and I didn't write this in there was that I, you couldn't bring, you don't, we can't bring music. We can't bring anything in there. And I also sing and I carry my instrument with me wherever I go. So I started singing um, at the end of class and I'd sing like a nigun, a Jewish nigun. I'd sing uh, all sorts of things. I'd sing chants, the ma chants. And I started singing and they would just kind of be like, wow, thank you, miss. And they'd leave. And, and then a couple weeks later, I, I came in, I sang again. And this one guy says, miss, is that you? He sits up, he pops up. And I said, yeah. And he goes, oh, wow. I thought it was a, like a radio last time you were in here. And he's like, and when I would get stressed out, I would just remember that song. Hmm. And I just, even telling that I have chills. And that guy who was actually really quite a difficult inmate for them ended up being reintegrated and got out of that unit because of the yoga and because of like having, like it reminds me of like an SE where we talk about pulling in a resource and the fact that he could tap into the, the felt sense of hearing that song again, that someone was singing to him Mm -hmm. and, um, there are these moments of like cues of safety that we talk about in SE and polyvagal theory where it's like, yeah, yeah, gentle voice, presence, witnessing the nervous system goes, Oh yeah. Okay. I'm okay. In this moment, even in this shitty cage. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Can you, thank you for sharing that. It's what a beautiful story. Um, Can you, can you say more about SC, like what that is? I'm not sure I really understand, you know, what I haven't really done somatic experiencing. I don't think. Um, you would know. Yeah. It's it's weird enough know. where you would be like, what is this? <laughs> um, <laughs> I know. Um, it is a bottom up approach to healing trauma and stress re- related sort of mm-hmm. symptomology. And it's very much a psychophysiological process. Um. It was founded by Dr. Peter Levine. He wrote Waking the Tiger in an unspoken voice. His work was really focused on animal behavior and why animals in the wild who are under threat on a regular basis, they're hunted and or running, whatever it is, why they don't have anxiety, PTSD, those sorts of things and, and why we humans do. And in that research, really realizing that our brains are, we share the reptilian and the mammalian brain with these wild animals, which means that we have some of those features. And then we grow this prefrontal cortex that's quite lovely and gives us executive thinking and it gives us uh, sequential memory. And it's also kind Mm. of pesky in that (laughs) if you are, say you and I are walking and you fall and you get up and you're like, I'm fine. I'm fine. Mm -hmm. And we keep going. 
you would be overriding what the body actually needed to do in order to release all of the stress hormones, stress chemicals that naturally arise without mm. any of your doing because you fell, right? Noradrenaline, adrenaline come up. There's all this like, mm. like whatever. And so he, Dr. L Peter Levine will say like all that survival energy is all dressed up with nowhere to go. Uh -huh. And in many ways, you know, initially somatic experiencing got, became very well known actually for shock trauma. It's, it's particularly good for that. Okay. Um, but we've over, over the years and through research and through really having deeper and deeper understandings of the, the physiology that we're carrying with us and how trauma sort of plants itself in the nervous system, right? The, the theory being it's in the nervous system and not in the event itself. Mm. Um, figuring out that like talk down and top down and talking about isn't actually releasing anything and that there needs to be this bridge from bottom up to top down. We need to teach that prefrontal cortex that's highly intelligent to learn to pay attention in a different way. So there's elements that are similar to mindfulness, but it's not mindfulness, hmm. but mindfulness is helpful. Right. Um, but, okay. but we're asking people to like, it's not necessarily comfortable either. Mm -hmm. And, and sometimes it's like, you know, watching paint dry or grass grow, or it's like, what are we doing right now? And then, and then all of a sudden the system will go, <laughs> Oh, that's, and then you'll say like, that's weird. What's weird. I, everything just shifted because our system is significantly slower than our brain. Hmm. So we got to let it that's catch right. up. Yeah. I think you've, you've used this on me in a way when we do photograph photography together, you know what I mean? Like you just stop, <laughs> you know, like, let's just stop. I, uh, I, I use it in my photography all the time yeah. and, um, I, I, I do trauma informed photography. Right. And go. what happens is, and you know, this, you've been in front of the lens many times and the camera comes out and it's like, and a startle happens, like mm. the eyes get wide, the breathing stall, all of a sudden our, we're breathing up here. If we're breathing at all, it's like, oh my God, what is that? They're inherently objectifying. And so if I'm going to work to not objectify people and not otherize people, I have to shift the narrative and I have to shift the relationship with the camera. Mm-hmm which is why my, my catchphrase is that my camera is not a weapon of mass perfection. Right. I love that. Actually, you remind me of something else in this chapter and someone who I think you would love, um, a famous, he's actually a famous Jewish theologian, Martin Buber. I don't know if you know his work. Uh, I, I know who he incredible. is. Incredible. Yeah. yeah. So I quote him here too, because he had this whole thing about um, moving from I, it to I, you, right? Like that we generally see other people as objects and, mm -hmm. you know, we're the real person. It's like, you know, um, we're the main character in the story and everyone else is just like, you know, supporting, <laughs> supporting cast. I mean, that's my analogy, but, you know, he talks about how shifting to see others as equal beings yeah. is 
is that, right? That whole thing you're describing. Yeah, collaboration and getting away, getting away from the otherness, because I feel like that's the theme here in our conversation. Um, That compassion, even the word compassion, I think still feels a little separate, even though it's the Mm -hmm. subtitle of my book, I use that word. It's like connection, actually seeing the other as you like they're like like what he said that i you rather than i it yeah which is very you know it's funny you know you said he's a jewish theologian and it's there's a there's a wonderful teaching in judaism and i'm sure i'll botch it but i'll get the meaning of it correct i promise but there's 70 i believe 72 names of god Faces of God, but we don't know what 72 there are. So if you treat everybody you meet, like they may be one of those faces, Uh right? And there we are in bearing witness and not otherizing because if, you know, or like Ram Dass would say, you know, treat everyone like God in drag. Right, exactly. Right. And it's this idea that we are all, sacred beings in some way in in a in a way and here for and to teach us something um and you know sharon salzberg talking about equanimity it's like yeah how do we be in that space where we're firmly rooted like a tree that's really deeply rooted in the earth but can move Mm. with the flexibility of the wind and the elements and not you know completely fall apart she's 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 an amazing teacher i've sat with her a couple of times and i'm really really lucky i am yeah years ago i got i was very lucky and and had the opportunity to sit amongst 10 people and her and it was it was a magical experience i just want to say that 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 teaching though is not just I mean, it's in Judaism. I think you're saying it's in Buddhism. It's also mm-hmm. in yoga. And I, I, I mean, that's yep. what I'm trying to share here is like in the yoga teachings, we find that. I have another yep. quote. I want to read one more quote. It's from um, the Bhagavad Gita. This is from Gandhi's translation of the Gita. Um, he says, the man equipped with yoga looks on all with an impartial eye, seeing Atman and all beings and all beings in Atman. Mm-hmm. He who sees me everywhere and everything in me never vanishes from me, nor I from him. How can I keep going? The, the yogi who anchored in unity worships me abiding in all beings lives and moves in me, no matter how he lives and moves. He who by likening himself with others senses pleasure and pain equally for all as for himself mm. is deemed to be the highest yogi. Mm. I love that. Part. Yeah. So other translations of that same I have another translation actually of that same um, section of the Gita, yeah. which is basically saying that feeling other people's pain or pleasure mm-hmm. as your own is the highest form of yoga. Yeah, and we have to we and and I will say that we have to be careful that we're not making it ours. Right. <laughs> right. That we're that we're joining but not merging, and that yeah. we're not we're not. I think because I love that teaching. And I see that teaching being um, misappropriated in that people are bypassing and they're like, Mm -hmm. I don't want to deal with that difficulty because everyone is blah, blah, blah. And it's like, we can't do that either. (laughs) 
So it's like, how do we hold that? And that's where the equanimity, I think, comes in, where it's like we can yeah. name that like this is kind of kind of unpleasant. Yeah. And I don't agree with it. You know? I think that's yeah. part of being an activist though, is is that there is that disagreeable part of me that goes, yeah, no, that's unjust. And it would be unskillful and unethical for for me from the yogi standpoint, even to not pay uh-huh. attention. Right. But also, like you said, to not make it about you, because then you and actually then you can also get burnt out and do nothing. And actually inaction exactly. comes from just that feeling, maybe the nervous system just feeling overwhelmed. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm in, I, this is too painful. I can't face it. I'm just going to distract myself and right. do something else. Right. Uh, turning away, you know, because mm-hmm. it's too painful, I think. So like, yeah. so I just, I love this conversation. I just want to say, I mean, I think we should probably wrap it up, but I just want to say like, this has been so helpful to me. It's like, we have to, we can take our own personal suffering. I feel like you're saying this and through our practice, through our work on ourselves, create capacity to hold other people's suffering. But if we don't, even though we can see ourselves in them, if we don't do that inner work, we're not going to be very effective. We're not. And we have to be careful that we're not, using our students or these populations to fix our woundedness. Right. Right. Often there, there's so much to the wounded healer and we have to make sure that we're not using our students um, as our uh, salve, if you will, that, Mm -hmm. um, that the part of it is like, I know this works because I've seen it work and it's worked for me. And, yeah. and also that there's no silver bullet. So this might not work for you, but Hey, check out this practice and see if it does. Mm-hmm. And I won't be offended if you don't like it. That's so awesome. I love that. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's like you said, it's equanimity. It's having that neutrality around it. It's like mm-hmm. service, you know, service or karma yoga or seva doesn't have a certain attachment to the result or expectation. It's like you're offering it. And then if, like you just said, if it doesn't work, okay. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. Find something else. You know, this is exactly like, here are some options for you. Mm -hmm. See what, see what medicine you need. Right. Yeah. Um, It's like a buffet. Take what you need, leave what you don't. (laughs) Yeah. Well, what worked for me might not work for you, you know? Yeah. Um, Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. That's so awesome. Anything else you want to share? How, oh, tell me, how can people find you? I'll put, we'll put your links to your website in um, the show notes, but I just wondered if you had anything you um, wanted to share about that. Sarit Z Rogers on Instagram or Sarit photo or, and I should say not, or, and <laughs> um, I, I did try to separate them. I, they should probably live together. I don't know. Um, and saritzrogers.com is my somatic and yoga land. And saritphotography.com is my photography land. Great. And, um, you know, you can read more about somatics experiencing on my site. You can book sessions mm-hmm. through my site. I'm pretty available these days. Great. So, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for all your support, all the photography for writing this and contributing to the book in this way. I appreciate it so much. Thanks for trusting me with with, uh, holding your art and making it come to life. Yeah, it's been amazing.
Thank you. Yeah. All right. I can't wait Thanks to see what's your... next. Ah, I know. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. See you later. Okay. Bye. Okay. Thanks so much for listening and joining the conversation. Yoga is truly a revolutionary practice. Thanks for being here. If you haven't already, I would love for you to read my book, Yoga Revolution, Building a Practice of Courage and Compassion. It's available wherever books are sold. Also, you can check out my website, jivanaheyman.com. There's some free classes on there and a meditation. And you can find out more about my upcoming trainings and other programs. Hope to see you next time. Thanks. Bye.